0: Good morning, pray for my voice, that it holds up. Our scripture today is from Acts chapter 5, we'll be reading Acts and studying Acts chapter 5 verses 12 to 42, Acts 5 verse 12. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the Apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick And someone came and told them, Look, the men who you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. And the captain and the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. They said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men, for before these days theudas rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone, for if this plan is an undertaking is a man it will fail, but if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them, and you might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. This is the word of our Lord. May He write its eternal truths upon our hearts in the power of His Spirit. And may He use these things to affect His glory in the building of His church. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we praise You for Your holy word. For Your word is the almighty word of the almighty God. And we praise you, Lord Jesus, that just as you sent your word through your servants and in the power of the Spirit, you effected that work by your Spirit in us to cause us to repent and come to faith in Jesus Christ, that we might be saved. Lord, we are confident in the power of that same Holy Spirit who was at work in and through the apostles, emboldening them, equipping them to preach the gospel faithfully no matter what came against them. We, praised, we praise you, Lord God, that your word advanced and multiplied and has continued to advance and multiply in this world. For we know, Lord, that your kingdom will not fail. Lord Jesus, we know that your kingdom will advance, your church will be, that is established on your name will grow and will assault the, veil, the very gates of hell. And so we pray, embolden us, Holy Spirit. Strengthen us, help us to believe these things in our hearts and Lord, to respond to these things in faith and obedience out of of love and devotion and worship and faithfulness to you, Lord Jesus Christ, the only Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. In 1994, Jeff Galuli then-husband of American figure skater Tonya Harding hired two men to attack another figure skater, Nancy Kerrigan. The men struck Kerrigan on the knee with a telescopic police baton, severely injuring her knee. And that was 30 years ago, but I can, I can still vividly remember footage of, of Kerrigan sitting on the floor, clutching her, her leg in agony and crying out again and again, Why? Why? Well, the answer to Kerrigan's question was clear. Tanya Harding wanted to keep Kerrigan out of the U.S. figure skating championships and the Winter Olympics so that Harding could win the gold medal. Well, the plan seemed to go according to plan. Kerrigan was was unable to participate at the U.S. championships and, and Harding won. However, the plot was uncovered. Harding denied any knowledge of the plan, but plea bargained to a lesser charge of covering up the plot after the fact. But as the story came came out, she did not only know, but but she was a key part of the plan to, to have Kerrigan attacked. Harding was banned from participating in American figure skating events for the rest of her life. Tonya Harding lives in infamy with the shame of her actions hanging over her head. Her reputation has been destroyed. She's been the subject of of a movie and and the butt of countless jokes. And even now, 30 years later, Kerrigan is a millionaire while Harding lives under the cloud of her actions. Tanya Harding was jealous of Kerrigan and her abilities, so she tried to destroy her career, but Harding's life was destroyed in the process. Jealous can be an ugly and destructive emotion. Jealousy has destroyed many, many lives. But not all jealousy is bad. Carolyn Neuheiser, in an article discussing whether a wife should be jealous for her husband, writes that the Bible clearly teaches that one type of jealousy is a sinful desire of the flesh which is set against the spirit. It is in the list of works of the flesh in Galatians 5, 19-21, she says. And James 3.16 says that the jealousy brings disorder and every vile practice. However... It, uh, Mrs. Neuheiser also describes what, what she calls sanctified jealousy, where a wife's desire is for her husband's heart. And she says that deeply personal conversations with a female are hers and hers alone. My beloved is mine and I am his, says the wife of Solomon 2.16. And so the, this, this wife with, with sanctified jealousy seeks to st- and strives to develop, develop a deeper relationship with her husband. And the same can obviously be said of a uh, and applied to a husband's jealousy for his wife. And this positive type of jealousy reflects the jealousy of Almighty God. Exodus twenty-five says, "I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God." And I remember many years ago sitting down for dinner with a friend of mine and, and trying to share the gospel with him, and and he was was troubled and wondering about about this this passage. He was was questioning the, the goodness of God because of God's divine jealousy, and he wondered whether it was pride in God that made God demand that we worship him. Well, I explained that this this kind of of attitude of, of pride for one's own glory would be vile in anyone except Almighty God, but I explained that because God is holy and righteous, God must keep his own commandments, and so God is jealous for the glory of his name. God keeps the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. God accepts no other gods before himself because God, again, is jealous for his glory. And my my friend was satisfied with my response. However, to my knowledge, he has yet to come to saving faith in Christ. Now, in our passage this morning, we actually see both kinds of jealousy. We see man's wicked, fleshly jealousy, and we see also God's jealousy for the glory of his name. We, we see men who, who try who, out of their own jealous pride, seek to seek to destroy anyone that gets in the path of the, of the honor that they want. But we see also God's jealousy, his jealousy for his own glory and the lengths that He'll go to in order to achieve that end. And we'll also see the results. We'll see the results of those who seek their own glory and are shamed, and those who seek God's glory and are honored. In Acts chapter 5, 12 to 42, we see another wave of persecution arise against the early church. This is more opposition from the the outside of the church. And in fact, this is really a continuation and an intensification of the persecution that we saw that began in in chapter 4. This persecution is is building and building and will reach a crescendo in chapter 7 with the stoning of Stephen, the, the first martyr of the church. And the drama that is laid out before us in Acts chapter 5, verses 12 to 42, is is really played out in in three scenes of of action-reaction. Three times, action-reaction, action-reaction. And in scene one, we we see the ministry of the apostles and the the reaction of the authorities in verses 12 to 18. In scene two, we see further ministry of the apostles and the reaction of the authorities again in verses 19 to 28. And then in scene three, we see still further ministry of the apostles and the reaction of authorities in verses 29 to 42. And then finally in verses 41, sorry, in 29 to 40. And then finally we have an epilogue in verses 41 and 42 with with the final response of the apostles, or rather the continuing response of the apostles. So in this passage then, we see the jealousy of man for his own glory and the jealousy of God for his glory. And we'll see the effects of both. So the first example of ministry reaction, in verses twelve to eighteen. The scene opens with a summary statement from Luke. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. The apostles are in the same place where Jesus administered in the temple precincts, and and also where the apostles had, had, had themselves previously ministered in the temple precincts. It's a, a large open area where, where many people could gather. These, these events that, that we're seeing as the apostles perform signs and wonders serve to authenticate their reliability as witnesses for Jesus Christ. They're demonstrating that they are faithful ambassadors for Christ as Christ continues to minister Through them in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, in contrast to the ministry and judgment, the the miraculous judgment of death that we saw in our last passage, the death of Ananias and Sapphira, these are signs that point to eternal life through Jesus Christ. But we're told that none of the rest dared join them. Well, there's some debate amongst commentators as to who the rest are. Some assert that they are indeed, in fact, secret believers, um, that they're, 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 they're true believers, but they, they don't want to, to, to identify themselves as the believers. But, but I, I really think that this is unlikely, given the, the immediate and the wider context of the passage, which speaks to the prayers for boldness and the answer to those prayers that we saw at the end of chapter 4. I, I believe that these were actually unbelievers who might have been drawn to the message of the gospel on one level, but out of fear did not want to be identified with the apostles or identified as Christians. And at this point, although there was still public favor upon the apostles, the, some of those who showed a level of interest in Christianity did not come to faith because they wanted to avoid oppression from their religious leadership. These are the kinds of people we, we read about in, uh, in John chapter 12, 42 and 43. In this case, speaking of authorities, nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so they would not be put out of the synagogue for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. It was far from easy in that culture to be identified as a Christian being a Christian in that culture came at great personal cost. There's no room for ble- being lukewarm. And that's still the case for many of our brothers and sisters around the world, that, 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 that standing up and saying, I want to follow Jesus will mean the, the loss of, of job. It'll mean the, the loss even of, of family and friends. It, it could mean being the loss of freedom through being, being imprisoned, being beaten and even killed. But in our culture, it's, it's still relatively easy to, to put up your hand and say, I'm a Christian. You won't, you won't get much pushback. Now, I believe that's changing, and that's changing quickly. I've seen a, really a radical change, even just in the last five or six years. There may come a time, and perhaps soon, when there will be great personal cost, even in this culture, for following Christ. By God's grace, the power of the Spirit... We need to set our hearts and our minds towards seeking Christ's glory even though it might mean public shame. We need to strive in God's strength to fight the fear of man. We, we need to pray for, for God's help to stand up for the truth of the gospel no matter what. We need to pray that our children will come to saving faith in Christ and teach them to stand for Christ even though it might mean standing alone. But despite that persecution, the church grew more than ever. We're told that multitudes, multitudes of men and women came to saving faith in Jesus Christ. This, friends, was true revival. The the hand of the Lord was mighty through the apostles and the proclamation of the word. And and the hand of the Lord was mighty in the hearts of those who heard the gospel and repented and came to saving faith in Christ. And we see here that that the, the apostles were, were performing, again, more signs. People would, would actually carry the, the sick into the streets so that Peter's shadow might fall on some of them and would heal them. And we're told also that the ministry had now begun to spread outside of Jerusalem as people are bringing this, the sick and demon-possessed, even from, from outlying villages, into Jerusalem so that they could be healed by the apostles, actually by the name of Jesus Christ through the apostles. So the word of God is is spreading. They are all healed. We're gonna see this the Lord doing the same sort of work through the Apostle Paul in, in Acts chapter 19, as, as people bring handkerchiefs. I tell you, my handkerchief wouldn't make anybody better, but they bring handkerchiefs and, and aprons to the Apostle Paul, or that that touched this, the Apostle Paul's skin. And when these these aprons came into contact with the sick and demon-possessed, they also were healed. Last week, we saw how Satan had, destroyed, had tried to, to damage the church from inside. But now we see that Satan's kingdom is being destroyed. This is the evidence that the apostles are continuing the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Mark writes about this in Mark 6, 54-56, about those who, who just touched the fringe of Jesus' garment are, are made well. So these signs are evidence that the apostles were commissioned by Jesus Christ to be his eyewitnesses. So then the Lord Jesus Christ is at work through the apostles in the power of the Holy Spirit. People are healed and people are being saved. But there's more opposition coming. The religious authorities are angry at what is taking place. Luke specifically mentions the high priest and those who were with him, the Sadducees. And were are told that they were filled with jealousy. Really, they're picking up where they had left off. In Luke's gospel account, the Pharisees were presented as the primary persecutors of Jesus. However, in Acts, Luke describes the Sadducees as driving the persecution of the church. This in part is, is due to the fact that one of the central teachings, uh, one of the central teachings of the apostles is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And remember, this is a doctrine that the Sadducees vehemently opposed. They did not believe in, in resurrection at all, let alone the resurrection of Jesus Christ. However, Luke says here that they're motivated by jealousy. So it wasn't just doctrinal, it was, it was, it was petty jealousy. You see, they, they held the position of power within the Sanhedrin. They were the ones, remember, who had, had, had cut a deal with the Romans so that they could stay in power. These were the, these were the power brokers on the Sanhedrin. But now, through the, because of the ministry of the apostles, they saw themselves as losing their grip on that power as they lost sway with the people. Now, these were supposed to be the religious leaders, but they did not love the people, let alone see the responsibility to serve the people. They selfishly wanted the people's respect in order to feed their pride of position. And so in a further intensification of the persecution, they sought to silence the apostles and to regain public favor by throwing them into the public prison. Now this could actually be translated, put them in prison publicly. And this actually fits the context as they are presented by a motivation for desire for public favor. It opens the door, pun intended, for future humiliation of the Sanhedrin. So the second scene, again, ministry and a reaction, verses 19 to 28. So the apostles are are thrown into prison, but during the night, an angel of the Lord appears and opened the, the prison doors and brought them out miraculously. And the angel has a message from God for the apostles about their message. Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of life. The Sadducees had tried to silence the apostles. They did not want the apostles proclaiming Christ and life in him, but clearly God did. And so God here is overruling the authority of the Sanhedrin. The Lord Jesus has commissioned these men as witnesses. Nothing and no one can stop them unless and until the Lord determined that their ministry was complete. When God wants his name proclaimed and wants his word to go forth, no power in all creation can stop it. So the apostles obeyed. Now, the temple precincts were, were closed at night, so at their first opportunity early the next morning we're told that they went to the, the temple precincts and began immediately to teach. And in doing so, remember, they're in direct violation of the command of the Sanhedrin from Acts four four eighteen, not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. However, they were under the command of Almighty God. So now the high priest and those with him The Sadducees called together the rest of the Sanhedrin and and sent the officers to the prison to have the apostles brought before them. You see the irony here. The the Sanhedrin is is further revealing their impotence. They had no idea what had happened. They're oblivious to what's going on. The officers realized that, that they were gone and then came and reported what had happened. The prison was locked. The guards were still there, but the prison was empty. Again, their weakness is on display. They they could not keep these men behind bars. They couldn't keep these men silent. And they were greatly perplexed as to what happened and what was the result. Now, the, the Sadducees couldn't understand. Remember, they also denied not just the resurrection, but they denied God's supernatural work in the world. It didn't fit their worldview. And then someone came and said, look, the men who you put in prison are, are now standing in the temple and teaching the people. I, I can't help but smile when, when I picture this, this scene. Just these men pulling their hair out. What are we gonna do? What's going on here? And so now the temple police are also we're shown to be to be disempowered. They're afraid of being stoned by the people, so they, they went timidly, they they tiptoed to the apostles and and quietly brought them before the Sanhedrin. Now remember, the, the men of the Sanhedrin had also been afraid to arrest Jesus because they were afraid of the people. The apostles did not resist arrest as they had seen the Lord's example. The high priest then questioned them, saying, we strictly charge you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. The apostles didn't bring Jesus' blood on their, head, on their heads. They'd done that very well themselves. But notably here, no mention is made of their escape. They say, how did you guys get out there? Perhaps some questions are better left unasked. They might not like the answer but they won't like Peter's response anyway. Scene three, again, ministry and reaction, verses 29 to 40. Peter's response is a terse reiteration of what he would said when the Sanhedrin first commanded him not to teach in the name of Jesus. At that time, Peter replied, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard, Acts 4, 19 and 20. And now he simply says we must obey God rather than men. Friends, we are to honor the governing authorities as far as we can as far as we can in obedience to them. But when they command something that is in direct contradiction to God's word, there is no question whose command must take priority. We regard Peter's words as bold, and they were. But what came next is far more bold. As Peter proceeded to do the very thing that he had been forbidden to do to the very men who forbade it, he preached Christ to the Sanhedrin. Remember, this is the same Peter who had fearfully denied Jesus even before a servant girl. He did that three times. It's the same Peter. But Peter isn't the same. Now indwelt by the Holy Spirit and filled with the Holy Spirit, he was able to answer with boldness, with power, He preached the gospel to them. Verses 30 to 32. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. So the Sanhedrin is placing the apostles on trial for disobeying them. But it is they who are on trial for killing Jesus. And the verdict against them is guilty. The Sanhedrin had had shamed Jesus and killed Jesus, but God exalted Jesus by raising him from the dead and raising him to his right hand where he now sits enthroned. They sought to abase Jesus to the lowest position, but God has exalted him to the highest position. De- they had declared Jesus cursed by God, but God exalted him and declared him to be God. You now here they they were uh, the apostles referred to to them killing Jesus by hanging him on a tree. This is a, a clear reference. To Deuteronomy 21, 23, a a hanged man is cursed by God. This is cited by Paul in Galatians 3:13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. Friends, Jesus bore the curse for sin, for all who put their trust in him. Is that you? Have you put your trust in Jesus Christ? Are you trusting Christ and Christ alone for your salvation? Or you, like these men of the Sanhedrin, are you resting in your works, in your position, in your whatever? But for those who truly come to Christ, they know that that the only thing that they bring to the table is the sin that makes their salvation necessary. None of us have done anything that would commend us to Christ. Our only hope is a crucified and risen and exalted Savior. So Peter tells these men that Jesus gives repentance and forgiveness Peter says that he and the other apostles are witnesses, but that there is another witness, the Holy Spirit. The whole Trinity is here in Peter's reply. God the Father raised the incarnate, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit bears witness. The Holy Spirit's power is here on, on display as he has empowered Peter to bear witness. The Holy Spirit has enabled Peter to answer with boldness and power. But that's not all. The Holy Spirit has also empower, empowered Peter to answer with benevolence. Just think about this. Again, this is the, this is the same Peter who had, had wanted to take up a sword to defend Jesus and then had, had cut off the ear of, the, of Malchus, the, ser, the servant of the high priest. And Jesus healed Malchus's ear and told Peter to put away his sword. And here Peter's sword is put away as he shares the gospel with his enemies, as men who, with men who had just imprisoned him, as he knows that these men want to kill him. Peter is extending the offer of forgiveness to men who didn't just want to kill Peter and the other apostles. These are the men who killed Jesus Christ. Again, just stop and think about this. You can't do this. I can't do this in my own strength. This requires supernatural strength from the Holy Spirit. As the recipient of God's grace, Peter is now offering that grace to his enemies. And we'll see, see this type of generosity of a spirit in chapter seven, as, as Stephen, being stoned to death with his last breath, cries out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. I see a parallel with with Corrie ten Boom, the the, the Dutch woman who was imprisoned by the Nazis for for rescuing Jews in in Holland. Her father was was killed and and she and her her sister were were sent to to another concentration camp And, and her sister died in that concentration camp. And then it was as she was speaking in in Germany years later, at the an SS. Well, uh, I'm actually giving away the point, the punchline of the story. A man approached her and said to her, "You do not recognize me, do you, Frau Line?" And then the recognition came flooding to her. This man standing before her was an SS guard in the same concentration camp where she and her sister had been imprisoned. The same concentration camp where her sister died. And she said she felt the the inner turmoil, the desire to, 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 to hurt this man. But that desire was overcome by the love of Jesus Christ that she had experienced. And she and this man embraced. This man at that moment became a Christian. I see this, another parallel in in Debbie Morris, who who forgave the man who had assaulted her and attempted to kill her boyfriend, a man who had already assaulted and murdered another woman. You know, it's easy to stand up and with, with bravado to puff out your chest and push back on your enemies. Anybody can do that. Unbelievers do that all the time. But a real man, a real woman of God, speaks firmly and directly, yes, but also with meekness and humility and love, even towards their enemies. May God make us all men and women like that. Men and women who are increasingly like our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who set the example when from the cross he prayed, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Luke 23:34. But now look at the reaction of the Sanhedrin. They were enraged and wanted to kill them. They they flew into a murderous rage, rage, and behind their their hatred of the apostles was the hatred of their lord, hatred of the name that they proclaimed. That this was demonic inspired hatred, an attempt to silence anyone who would proclaim Christ permanently. Their hatred was ignited by the fires of hell and was bent on the extinguishing the light of the gospel from the church. But God had another plan. Verse 34. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. Gamaliel, a Pharisee, he held a a prominent position in the Sanhedrin. He was well-respected. He was very likely the the grandson of the famous rabbi Hillel. He was also the teacher of Saul before Saul became Paul. In fact, it is very likely that, that Paul was present for this discussion and is the one who related to Luke. Gamaliel warned them, men of Israel, take care what you're about to do with these men. And he used two examples from recent history that would have been very familiar to them. Theudas, who had rallied 400 men to his side, but then was killed, and his followers dispersed. It ended in nothing, Gamaliel says. And then Judas, the Galilean, who who led a revolt against Rome. He, too, was killed and his people scattered. Josephus, the historian, speaks of of a Galilean named named Judas, who led a revolt against Rome. It was based on the refusal to pay taxes. It's based on, a, this is a historical event. So Gamaliel concludes in verses 38 and 39. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone, for if this plan or undertaking is from man, it will fail. But if it is from God, you'll not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found to be opposing God. So Gamaliel's counsel was, was not to act rashly, rather to leave them alone. He's saying, wait and see. If the apostles are merely acting in, in their own human effort, like those of Theodos and Judas the Galilean, they will fail. However, if the apostles are acting on behalf of God, fighting against them is fruitless and would amount to opposition against God himself. Commentators are, are divided as to their assessment of Gamaliel's counsel. Many see Gamaliel as a wise counselor. However, Martin Lloyd-Jones says that Gamaliel was as blind as the raging colleagues of the Sanhedrin with him. Now, I tend to agree with with Martin Lloyd-Jones' assessment. In one sense, Gamaliel was right. They were opposing God. However, with the first part, his advice isn't necessarily good advice. Sometimes evil thrives because good men do nothing. Furthermore, God sometimes allows evil to thrive for a time for his greater purposes. And the power and the actions of this, of this men in the Sanhedrin are exhibit A of that fact. But Gamaliel's character, the wisdom of his counsel is not the point of this passage. Rather, the point is that God used Gamaliel, an influential leader, but who was very likely an enemy of the gospel, to protect the apostles so that God's word would continue to go forth. God in his providence used this man to enact the release of the apostles so that the witness of Christ would continue to grow. They took his advice. I do wonder how Saul, who is a, again a pupil of Gamaliel, would just in just a couple of chapters take a, a position that, that is so opposite to what his instructor said here and he would act so zealously for the destruction of the church. But the scriptures really don't don't tell us the answer, so it would only be speculation. So the Sanhedrin called the apostles before them and beat them. This would have been a a flogging of of 40 lashes less less one. This was a a public shaming. An attempt, again, to to discredit the apostles before the people. It's, It's a further intensification of the persecution. And so they commanded the apostles once again not to speak in the name of Jesus and they let them go. Let's see how this command fared this time. You look at the epilogue in verses 41 and 42. The last word belongs to the apostles. They left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. They were honored to suffer dishonor. Now, it sounds like an oxymoron to us. It sounds like two words that don't go together, but they rejoiced in their suffering because through their suffering, the name of Jesus Christ was proclaimed. We've talked about this before, and we'll see it again several more times in Acts, that Jesus had warned his apostles of this very thing. One example, Luke 21, 12 and 13. They will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. You will be brought before kings and governors for my sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. So the apostles saw this as an opportunity and a privilege to bear witness for Jesus Christ. And by God's grace, they did not seek their own honor, but they sought the honor of Jesus Christ. Peter knew personally what he was talking about when he wrote 1 Peter 4, 13 and 14. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you also may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. For if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory rests upon you. So can just think about this from, from Peter's perspective. Peter wrote 1 Peter many years after this event, but that th- these events that he saw again and again. He saw the this persecution and these trials that he experienced as opportunities to bear witness of Christ. The tradition says that he continued to do so even to his death. When, as, as history records, he was, he was crucified, but, but he was unwilling to be crucified and to die in the same manner of death as the Lord Jesus Christ. So he said, if you're going to crucify me, crucify me upside down. And that's how Peter met his Lord. Could you say that? Could you do that? Could you, could you say that it is an honor to suffer for the name of Christ? Can you say that, that the, the trials that, that you are experiencing or have experienced or will experience, can you say that, that you are thankful for them because they give you opportunity to bear witness for Christ, to glorify Christ? Trials will come. But your only hope in mine in those trials is to look beyond ourselves, beyond our trials, to Christ and His glory. I wonder sometimes if I would be able to rejoice in severe persecution. If I would really consider it an honor to be kind of worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Christ. But by God's grace, I can. And so can you. Because you and I are not standing in our own strength. Look what Peter said in 1 Peter 4.13. You are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. You and I can stand in the power of the same Holy Spirit who indwelt The apostles. You and I can stand in the power of the same Holy Spirit who indwelt Pastor Siotud in Laos. We have the same Holy Spirit. Now we don't know what trials are coming. But we can be confident Mm -hmm. in this Holy Spirit who is the assurance of our salvation. Perhaps you can think of times when when someone mocked you or, or mistreated you for your witness for Christ. Now, I'm not talking about times that you were a jerk to someone. But by God's grace and the power of the Holy Spirit, you, you humbly but directly and clearly bore witness of Jesus Christ and then was di- were dishonored for it. You could testify that it was not pleasant in the moment, but upon reflection, after the fact, it's it was an encouragement to your heart, right? I know many of us can testify to this. W- once again, I want to commend to you Fox's Book of Martyrs. It probably more than any other book in the English language, shows the history of the church and the faithful witness of Christians who suffered and died for their faith. Example after example of of men and women. Men and women who were, were men and women just like you and me, but who suffered and died for Christ. It's not a light read. This isn't bedtime reading. But it shows God's faithfulness throughout church history to continue to bear witness for himself in the church, the power of his Holy Spirit. Derek Thomas tells a story of Alexander Solzitsyn, who was a prisoner in Siberia during the Communist Revolution. And one night in prison, Boris Kornfeld, a Jewish doctor, sat up with Solzitsyn and told him the story of his conversion to Christ. That same night, Kornfeld was clubbed to death. And so Winston said that Kornfeld's last words were, bless you, prison, for having been my life. He knew that, that in that prison, and even his horrific death in that prison, was what ushered him into the presence of Almighty God. Again from Derek Thomas. The apostles and, and all who truly suffer for Christ had come to understand that Jesus transforms the experience of death from one of cringing fear to one of glorious anticipation of being in the nearer presence of the ascended Lord Jesus Christ. That's the message of Hebrews two fourteen and 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has power over death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Friends, Christ has defeated our most powerful enemies, death and Satan. So we have nothing to fear from men. Again, I had to ask myself whether I truly believe this. Even as I was preparing the sermon, I was like, Lord, do I really believe this? By God's grace, my answer was, yes, Lord. Yes, I do believe it. Help me to believe it more. Do you believe it? Ask that the Lord will help us to believe it. And finally, verse 42, And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. And so the apostles' ministry continued unabated. The threats and the mistreatment of the Sanhedrin did nothing to hinder the advance of the gospel. They did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Ben Witherington says that there is an even larger irony that God and his faithful followers in the end win by losing. By letting their opponents win and then transforming the expected result. The suffering and death even of the apostles, like that of their master, does not lead to the squelching of the Jesus movement. It leads to its success and expansion. Again, nothing can thwart the advance of the gospel because God has commanded His church and empowered His church to proclaim the gospel. May we not cease preaching and teaching that the Christ is Jesus. The early church grew because it was filled with people who were filled with the Holy Spirit and had love for Jesus Christ. They could not help but speak of Jesus Christ. Ask the Lord to make this a church that that is a church full of those who rejoice to bear witness of Christ in every and any circumstance. A church full of people who love Jesus Christ and love others enough to tell them about his glory, even our enemies. We come back to those who Luke spoke about in verse 13. Those who are of the rest that would not dare join them. Out of fear of man, they remained on the outside and missed the blessing of knowing and serving Christ. We pray for the persecuted church every week. Our brothers and sisters. Daily suffer shame and mistreatment. They're imprisoned, they're beaten, they're even killed for their faith. But what motivates them? The glory of Christ. And what empowers them? The Holy Spirit. And again, we have the same Holy Spirit as they do. Brothers and sisters. Here in, the, in this early church, they saw the direct answer of their prayer for boldness from the end of chapter 4, the direct and immediate answer. May we see the direct and immediate answer as we also pray for boldness. Persecution does not hinder the advance of the gospel. It strengthens the resolve of those who believe the gospel. We need not fear persecution. We should expect persecution. Persecution. Again, we've we've been living in a time where we have seen an an increase of hostility toward the gospel, an increase of hostility toward toward the church, an increase of hostility towards Jesus Christ. But whatever other people do and say about us, there is a judge. And his verdict is the one that matters. Do not fear man. May we consider it a blessing to be counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus Christ, that the name of Jesus Christ might be honored through us. Let's pray together. Our Lord Jesus Christ, we want to see your name magnified. We praise you for the fact that you have saved us of your amazing grace. We know that we deserve eternal damnation for our sin. Yet, Lord, you have made us the objects of your grace and mercy. You have showered out your, your overflowing forgiveness upon us. You lived and died and rose again for our sanctification, for our salvation, for our justification. You have given us the Holy Spirit to indwell us and to shape us and to mold us and to to make us more like you. Help us, I pray, Lord Jesus, to follow in the footsteps of the apostles as they follow in your footsteps. Help us to do what we could never do in our own strength so that your name would be advanced, your kingdom would advance, and your church would grow for the glory of your name we pray in the matchless name of Jesus Christ, the only Savior, amen.